What's up? It's Delaney, and I'd love to invite you to become an honorary co-host of the Self-Helpless Podcast. Do you want to pick episode topics and guests? Done. Want to surprise your loved ones with shout-outs on the show for a birthday, project launch, a much-needed divorce? Whatever you're up to, would love to be a part of the celebration. Get your favorite and least favorite quotes featured on the podcast, submit questions for our special guests, and find lots more new features and surprises at patreon.com slash selfhelpless. You'll also get added to our patron insider email list to easily redeem rewards via a quick email reply because we know hanging out on Patreon isn't everyone's thing. You can also opt out of emails if you prefer to be a silent supporter of the show. And don't worry, we do not Scrooge McDuck these contributions. 100% of proceeds go directly to operating expenses that make this weekly podcast possible and available to all. Learn more at patreon.com selfhelpless or simply click the link in this episode's description. Thank you for helping me fill the void of being the last standing host of the Self Helpless Podcast. Thank you so much. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Self-Helpless Podcast. I'm Delaney Fisher, and Kelsey Cook is unfortunately not able to make it today, but I am joined by a fantastic guest, Walt Drennan, who is the host of the Ask Me About My Type 1 podcast, and Walt was also featured in the Bike Beyond documentary. And during this episode, we discuss Walt's experience living with type 1 diabetes, the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and there's even more types of diabetes, which I did not know the events that led up to his diagnosis, the incredible undertaking of him biking across the country multiple times and what that experience taught him, the accessibility and lack thereof of insulin and other necessities for people with diabetes, how the global pandemic has affected people with diabetes and how it's affected Walt specifically. He shares about a life-threatening experience he had recently related to his type one. We also talk about ableism and what people like myself and other ableism able-bodied people can do to best support people with disabilities. And I also ask Walt how he felt about the Dexcom commercial with Nick Jonas that aired recently during the Super Bowl and his thoughts about it and my perspective about it were so different. And I think it's a really important exchange for a lot of people to hear. So really quick, before we get into this interview with Walt, I have a couple quotables to share. You are really getting a quotable parade today because I have a couple and then Walt brought a couple of quotes in as well. So these were submitted by our helpsters. And the first one is, Remember, despite how open, peaceful, and loving you attempt to be, people can only meet you as deeply as they've met themselves. That is uh, by Matt Kahn, submitted by Helpster Tory. Mm, that's a good one. What a, what a commentary on personal growth, baby. Very, very juicy. Thank you for submitting that, Tori. We really appreciate it. This next one was submitted by Helpster Courtney. Great minds discuss ideas. 
Average minds discuss events. Small minds discuss people. Damn. That that one that one deserves a mic drop. That is an Eleanor Roosevelt quote, and you know, to be honest, I feel like I feel like I've been a mix of all of these at different times in my life or week, depending on what I'm going through. Let's be real. You know, my brain is like a great average small mind combo meal that you might that you might get. So yeah, working on working on being more consistently the great mind, but uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I fall short sometimes. So thank you, uh, Courtney, for submitting that. Thank you, Tori. If you are interested in submitting quotes that make it on the podcast, you can head over to our Patreon community at patreon.com slash self-helpless. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Walt Drennan. Walt, thank you so much for being here today. I am so looking forward to this conversation. I learned so much by being on your podcast, which uh, you brilliant, brilliantly pair uh, people with type 1 diabetes, with type nuns, as you call them. And I was a type nun for an episode, and you paired me with, with uh, Jennifer Bartles, very talented actress. And I just... I learned so much and I was blown away by how much I did not know about type one. So thank you so much for being here to talk all things type one um, for our you know listeners. But before we get into uh, your experience and everything, do you have a quote, a favorite quote, least favorite quote? Let's hear it. <laughs> boy, boy, do I. I've, I've literally been listening to you guys for years now. And so like, this is, I've had my quote ready since like 2017. <laughs> so this is, this is the culmination of much planning. So thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, and thank you for having me on the show. This is really great. Again, I'm a, I'm a fan. So oh, um, if I start fanboying out, <laughs> feel free to tell me to shut up. No, um, <laughs> keep it coming. No, go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah. So my quote, I have two. Um, my first quote is a Mary Oliver quote. She's an American poet. And uh, she said in one of her poems, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. And I I found this on Pinterest a long time ago. And before anybody says it, I will acknowledge that is very much the YOLO quote if it like <laughs> went to grad school for English lit. Um, but I like it because it doesn't try to like force feed you an answer. It kind of right. gives you, it reminds you that this is, this is what you got and you have to do with it what you want. And life is both beautiful and wild. It's sad and happy. So like it, it reminds me of that. And it kind of, it also reminds me of like what the, the quits that I hate really lack, um, especially the ones that like tell you what to do or like tell you how to feel about certain things, especially the ones about happiness specifically. I have, have a history of depression and the ones that tell you is like, oh, happiness is a choice, not a feeling. It's like, you know, you know, screw you. Like, yeah. Go for me, happy is really right. hard. And yeah. for a lot of people, it is. Yeah. So I feel like this one quote really kind of reminds me that I have a choice in this and I can, you know, I don't have a whole lot of control, but there are some things I can control. So yeah. that kind of, that's why I, I like that. this particular quote. Yeah, I love that and one. Then, it's like more of a prompt for you to think about your own right, life. Right, exactly. Really like. yes. Yeah, it's not, it's not telling you what to do. It's, it's just reminding you that you need to decide what to do because this yeah. is this is it. And it's Good all up one. to you. Coming yeah. in hot, Walt. Second, I like it. <laughs> Coming in hot. <laughs> like I said, I've, I've been holding on to this for a very long time. So it's I'm really glad one. I got to <laughs> share it. Um, and then the second one, it's more, I think probably people will be more familiar with it. Um, I saw it a couple of years ago on on the social media. And I think it's it relates to the topic uh, today. So like, my illness is chronic, but my tits are iconic. And so... <laughs> 
that so one i did really i really wanted to make you laugh so thank you for laughing <laughs> and like what while i was practicing this in the mirror like practicing my delivery um <laughs> it kind of hit me in a couple of different ways because like it's one of those like my therapist said quotes like mm-hmm. from the meme on you know instagram whatever you follow yeah. and it it's basically like encouraging somebody to not delude themselves into like ignoring their chronic illnesses Mm -hmm. but on the same time like on the opposite side of that people with chronic illnesses have a very fraught relationship with their bodies so Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard for us or at least for me i can say to kind of acknowledge the positives of our bodies and the things that they can do for us even though that they are slightly they don't operate at a hundred percent all the time like you know able-bodied people do Mm -hmm. um so yeah so i wanted to bring that up and how it kind of it I like it for two different reasons. And yeah. I just wanted to make you laugh. Uh, hell of a quote. Very nice. I think that's one of my favorites uh, I've heard uh, in a long time on this show. I like that you started off with that. Was it Mary Oliver you said? Started off Mary with Oliver, yes. yeah, the more serious one. Did not see the titty one come in. It was definitely a, a welcomed surprise. <laughs> um, anyway, so let's get into it, shall we? I think a great yes. place to start um, would be if you don't mind sharing, what is type one diabetes and what is the difference between type one and type two? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Before I go into that, I just want to dis- make a disclaimer. I am not a medical professional. I will be talking about a lot of medical things, obviously, because chronic illness, that's what that deals with. Um, uh, so, and then also I'm just one person with type one. I'm not I don't represent type one in any way um, and type one specifically, but all chronic illnesses really are bio-individual. Like your experience with your chronic illness is very specific to you. So you can definitely learn. I think, I think you can definitely learn something from what I've gone through with my type one, but don't judge yourself based on it is mm-hmm. what I'll preface to everybody listening. Yeah, super um, important to yeah. say. Thank you so much. Yes. Yeah. So essentially what type one is, it's an autoimmune condition. Um, it's where the my autoimmune system decided or started attacking the insulin producing cells in my body. And so now I don't make any insulin at all. And I know insulin is kind of a buzzword now because it's kind of like the poster child for our very broken United States healthcare system. Um, but insulin is actually something that every mammal needs to survive. So like you, Delaney, you make your own. So, um, you know, people walking outside uh, your house on the street need it. Um, it's a very vital hormone that we all produce, except me. I don't produce it anymore. So because I don't produce it anymore, I have to buy it and administer it to myself, um, which is something that, you know, able-bodied people do naturally. And so the difference between that and type two, type two is uh, generally considered to be a metabolic disorder. So it's when the body doesn't produce enough insulin or has a hard time producing uh, insulin for the person's needs. Um, There really isn't a, uh, so they're very similar in that both type one and type two affect a person's ability to monitor regulate their blood glucose, but it's for different reasons. And in addition to type one and type two, there's actually a few different types of uh, diabetes that I'd like to go through just to kind of give people the the very wide range of diabetes that exists. So there's actually, and this is actually something I learned very recently within the last couple of years, I would say. Um, Like, so 
Delaney was on the show on my podcast uh, last year, and we kind of just covered type one and type two because those were really the only ones that I knew. But then later on, I realized that there's actually a few more um, and they're a lot more rare. Yeah. So there's one that's referred to, it's called latent autoimmune diabetes in adults. So essentially it's very similar to type one, but it's diagnosed in people in their 20s and 30s, you know, and older. Um, I think type 1 diabetes is often misconce- uh, the misconception around it or one of the bigger ones is that it's only diagnosed in children, um, which can be really dangerous because if, you, if you're an adult with it and doctors aren't anticipating you having it, you can go misdiagnosed or kind of go years or months without a diagnosis. And if you're not treating type 1 the way you should be, which, which is with insulin, you could die. So it's very dangerous if you're not, if you don't get that um, diagnosis as soon as possible. Mm. So in addition to that, there's MODI. Um, it's a maturity onset diabetes in the young. So it's it's similar to type two, but it's actually diagnosed in younger people. So like in the like the preteens kind of thing. Okay. Um, and it's monogenic. It's genetic. So it's because it's uh, due to a genetic mismatch or a. Uh, a defective gene essentially okay. that their bodies start to produce less and less insulin over the course of their lifetime. So it starts out, they start producing less, um, probably around like middle school age or even younger. And then over the course of their lifetimes, they start progressing to look to their body makes less and less insulin. So they start, um, needing to treat the way type ones would typically, or that's how type ones would start. So wow. yeah, there's, and then there's another type three, uh, di- or type three C, is referred to. And that's when somebody's pancreas has to be removed completely. And it's actually quite interesting because, so the pancreas does actually a lot more than just insulin production. Um, it, it's uh, in charge of a lot of the digestion or it produces a lot of enzymes that are crucial to the digestion. So in addition to needing to regulate their blood sugars with insulin medication, they also have to take medication to account for the enzymes that they're no longer producing. So there's very different, they're all diabetes or they fall under the diabetes umbrella, but they're very different treatments. They affect different uh, numbers um, of the population. And uh, yeah, they're all very unique and nuanced and, uh, yeah, so it's important to acknowledge those and realize that people do exist with these things, and um, I had no idea that it's not—it's not just—it's not just, it's not just yeah. about the ones and twos. Right, right, okay. And what led to your diagnosis? Like, how old were you? What events led up to to you being diagnosed with type one? Yeah, so I like to say that my diagnosis is both very typical, but also very kind of out of the norm. Um, so I was diagnosed when I was twelve. So that's about 21 years ago now. Um, and the symptoms are kind of pretty textbook. Um, I was losing a lot of weight really quickly. I was about like a, a pound or two a day. Um, oh at diagnosis, I think I weighed 85 pounds um, oh for a 12-year-old that's not you know, healthy. Um, there's also a few of the warning signs to look out for. That's probably the main one, the physical one, especially with boys. I think it's a lot more noticeable in boys because you know, um, probably the gendered, society that we live in when boys get smaller that's it's like a it's not a good sign mm. um so then there's also extreme changes in appetite for over the course of like the two years that i've done my podcast most of the people say that their appetite actually increased during their pre-diagnosis phase but mine um actually ended up decreasing so like i i was not hungry at all and so like it kind of made sense for the weight loss but like that dramatic of a weight loss wasn't obviously it, it stuck out 
And then also going to the bathroom a lot, peeing a lot, because your body is so, when you don't make any insulin, your blood sugar goes up. And since your body can't do anything with that sugar, uh, it needs to get it, get rid of it somehow. So the way that it does it is through the kidneys. And, you know, so you have to drink a lot of water. Um, and then that makes you obviously go to the bathroom a lot. So the reason why it's so important is that the food that we eat has the sugars that our body needs to run, but our body can't absorb that sugar without insulin. So that that's the insulin's the middleman essentially. So okay. you need that in order to absorb the food that you eat. So when I said that people have an increase in appetite, they just ate and ate and ate and still lost weight. That's why, because their bodies aren't absorbing the sugars that they are ingesting. So like, which is actually, it, the, uh, it happens a lot with, well, obviously it happens with women, but that's a one thing or a concern I have on the show a lot is that a lot of them are every, all the women that I've had on that were diagnosed after the age of 18 would like, uh, say a lot that they, they, they won the jackpot. Like they're eating all this food, but not gaining any weight. They're actually losing weight. And, uh, yeah, so that's a kind of a danger that our societal image of women and, and, and like, uh, women, uh, yeah. Uh, their bodies and uh right. it can be really dangerous if you don't go to the doctor quick enough with that kind of thing right so like where women might seek help like later on than maybe a, a man you know who's experiencing this right so they, yeah it, dramatic weight loss isn't something that they see uh is it is seen as a positive as opposed to a negative right. yeah so is there a known cause to type one specifically does does is that does that exist do people know why it happens? No. So yeah, type uh, the history of type one is actually really interesting. It's actually there's records of from ancient Egypt. So like there's papyrus out there with hieroglyphics describing what we know today as diabetes. So it's been around for thousands of years, um, almost as long as humans been have been around. But so, but short answer is that there is no known cause. The prevailing like theory or idea around it is that it's a combination of genetics and uh, like a natural environmental cause. Mm. So like for whatever reason, the way my genes are set up caused me to develop type one or have type one after I was uh, like a, there was a shock to my immune system and it mm. caused it to kind of kick into overdrive and start attacking the insulin producing cells in my body. So now I don't make insulin on my own. So like that's the prevailing theory. Okay. Okay. And what do you have to think about that other people do not have to think about who don't have a chronic illness? How has this changed your life? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <so laughs> I know it's a like, big loaded question. <laughs> it could be here all day, but yeah, whatever you want to share. Right. Yeah. So like I said, I was diagnosed when I was 12. That was 21 years ago. So yeah. the way my life was before that and with, uh, and after that, I, it's hard for me to really say, and I've been doing it for so long that I really only know this life. Mm. Um, so, but basically I just have to be very conscious of what I eat. Um, I have to make sure that I'm dosing correctly. I have to be aware of my blood glucose, my blood sugars, my levels. Um, and I have to, but in, so that's just type one management, but I'm also, you know, a human, I have a job. I want to make friends. I want to, you know, meet a woman and get married one day. So like, there's that, the medical side, but then also like the real life side. And so like when you get diagnosed with any chronic illness, the world doesn't stop spinning. Like you have to keep on going. And so like, you're kind of at this, you're, you're kind of starting the race 50 yards back kind of thing. So like, I have to monitor all these things on the daily 
um, so that I can just, so that I can pretend like I'm normal kind of thing. So like everybody is at a, like baseline is normal. I have to work really hard just to get to that. Wow. Would you be comfortable um, sharing or talking about how you manage your type one on a day-to-day basis? Like, are there certain tools or things that you use that you can kind of explain to people who have no idea what this encompasses? Yeah. So yeah, the way we manage is a very common question within the, like the type one community, the diabetes community. Um, So typically I have an insulin pump and it's something that I wear that, that gives me insulin. I have like a, it comes with a remote control that I can type in how much insulin I need and it'll give me that. Um, I don't have it now because at the, it's um, just another comment on the U S healthcare system. I've been having issues with my insurance to get the, that specific uh, pump. So now in the meantime, in the interim, while I wait for them to like decide what they need to decide in order to get me that, those, that equipment, I'm using syringes. So it's called multiple daily injections or MDI. So I use a syringe um, and my vial of insulin. Uh, so every time I eat, I take a shot. Um, it's something that actually a lot more type ones uh, specifically or insulin dependent people do nowadays. Um, pumps and that kind of technology is really expensive. So not everybody can afford it, especially in the way our healthcare system is set up. So I use that for dosing. Um, and I just wanted to show this just to normalize yeah. it because this is something that can get people into a lot of trouble if people don't know what they're doing. Um, oh my, oh my I started, wow, started yeah. watching TikTok a lot recently. And there's a lot of stories of type ones just dosing the way they normally do with syringes like that and people coming up to them and saying, like, you shouldn't be doing that here, assuming that they're oh doing drugs, essentially, oh which I guess they yeah. they technically are, but they're not those kinds of drugs. Right. Um, but yeah, so then there's that. That's just the insulin uh, dosing. So like, like I said, I don't make my insulin, so I have to figure out a way to get into my body. Um, there's also blood sugar monitoring, which can be done with a glucometer, it's called. And that's what this is. I have like three or four different ones because again, insurance is, you know, very temperamental. They like to decide, they like to think that they know which ones you should be using as opposed to others. Um, So like every glucometer comes with its own specific type of test strips, which is what you put the blood in to determine what your blood glucose is. Um, I also wear a Dexcom, which is a continuous glucose monitor. Um, Basically, it's a small sensor that has a, it's kind of a, a needle, I guess you would call it, that's okay. in your body. And it basically get, gives constant readings of your blood glucose every five minutes in this case. And then it oh, sends wow. that information to my phone and I can see it in graph form. Oh, and wow. it can also predict like raises and falls so that I can like, you know, plan accordingly. So like, and I, I can either dose insulin to like bring it down before it gets too high or start to eat something so that it doesn't get too low. Wow. So that is obviously a lot to manage and think about on a day-to-day basis that other people do, do not have to think about. So how has that, you know, preparing for just going out into the world, doing a certain activity, what do you have to think about prepare? Do you have to take certain breaks that people don't have to take? Can you kind of speak to how that, yeah, how, how does that work? What yes. Yeah. So we do definitely have to. Again, I say we should, we do have to do these things, but 
I'll be honest, like I never, I didn't do that always. Like I'm very, I'm, a, I'm at a very different uh, point in my relationship with my type one than I was, you know, five, 10 years ago. Um, back in high school when I was, you know, a high school kid, I didn't want people to think I was weird because I had to inject myself with insulin every time I ate. So I would either not dose or I wait to get till I got home to dose. Um, I wouldn't check my sugars as often. Um, so like there's that. And then also, but if you are trying to be responsible and trying to take care of yourself, it's just a matter of like making sure that you have everything you need. Um, women have purses, so it's a little bit easier for them to like carry all their stuff. Um, and it's just a matter of making sure that you have things, making sure that you have snacks, because I think a really big misconception around diabetes in general is that sugar is like evil. Like you can't have it if you have diabetes, but there are a lot of instances where sugar saves can save somebody's life. Like I literally just sitting here, I have, you know, a Clementine, I have like Hershey kisses. I have a bar just in case, like that's kind of like the mentality that you have to have is that you have to prepare for these things that may not happen, but could possibly happen. Right. Wow. Um, is there anything that you are especially proud of since your diagnosis like are there certain accomplishments yeah so so when i was I, like i said earlier i was diagnosed at 12 and i mentioned that my diagnosis was pretty typical but like my it was also very atypical or out of the norm because at the time my family and i were preparing to move to mexico uh, my dad worked for the uh, or he used to he was retired now but he used to work for the us government and we had to move around a lot um, so at that point, it was a pretty big life-changing event, but in my life, it was one of many life-changing events that were going on at the time. Um, so I don't think I had the same kind of time frame to kind of like really accept my type one and kind of incorporate it into my, what I thought my identity was at that point. And especially I was 12 too. So like I was right. trying to figure out who I wanted to be and right. this, this condition that I was kind of like slapped in the face with, um, through no fault of my own, I didn't really, I didn't do anything to get it, um, was kind of like, it was there and I had to deal with it. it there was just no choice. My parents took on a lot of that. So like they took a lot of, uh, on a lot of my management. And back then there wasn't as much, um, freedom with management. So like, it was very kind of like schedule based. So like you took one shot in the morning, one shot, shot at night and kind of ate on a kind of like a time schedule. I was in school. So that was pretty easy, hmm. but now that management has gotten a bit more customized. Like you can do it a little bit easier. You can like cater it to your lifestyle as opposed to catering your lifestyle to your type one. Um, it's definitely changed over the course of the, my 21 years with this. Um, but yeah, so with that said, my relationship with it at the very beginning was very fraught. Like I try to ignore it as best I could. Um, and for people that kind of know that, the more you try to ignore something, especially something like a chronic condition, the more it's going to kind of chase you kind of thing. Mm. I was so determined to not be defined by my, by my type one, that that was all that I was doing. I was, that was the only thing that I could see in myself. So I didn't think that anybody else would be able to see anything else. So I did, uh -huh. I ended up just defining myself by my type one anyways. So towards, so I kept that up for about, I would say 12 years. And then at the point where I was, I was getting ready to graduate from grad school and I wanted to do something really big and kind of epic before I had to like, you know, grow up and get a real job. So I decided to uh, join this organization 
your list, some of your listeners probably know it, a bike and build. It's this organization that sets up cross-country cycling trips to raise money for affordable housing. Um, so what they do is they set you up. They, you start on an East Coast city and bike across the country to a West Coast city. And along the way, you build houses with like Habitat for Humanity, for example. And so I went from Charleston, South Carolina to Santa Cruz, California in 80 days with a team of 30. And I was the only type one on the team. So wow. at that point... It was kind of like the first time I had to like seriously acknowledge my type one and talk about it openly because I didn't want to, one, I think a really common um, like thoughts or men mental state with people with chronic illnesses is being a burden on people around you. So like we know what it's like to have to deal with this condition that we can't get rid of. And then knowing like all the struggles and not wanting to put that on other people is a really big, like, I think motivator for people like me, or at least it was for me. Yeah. And so that was like the first time I had to like come to grips with it and start telling people about it. I still wasn't as very, I wasn't as open as like I would have liked to be like just looking back, but it was something like I had to do this so that I can enjoy this, you know, once in a lifetime, you know, epic ride. Um, and it ended up, I was able to do it. Like it, I didn't have any complications concerning wow. my type one. It was really hard, but like it was hard for everybody. Like I was yeah. on a team of 30 able-bodied people and they're like, you know, they're, everybody had their good days and bad days. So yeah. So I got, so we got to the Pacific ocean. That's like where the end was because you know, no more roads after that. And like, I was standing in the beach and it was just really, um, I was like, holy shit. Like I did this. And nothing happened uh, concerning my type one. I was like really proud of myself, but also it was really bittersweet because none of the people around me kind of understood that. And I didn't feel like I could share that experience. Um, so that was my first time, not only acknowledging my type one, but accepting what it meant. Basically that I'm not, I am different than everybody else, but if I just take the right um, precautions and like forethought, if I just work a little bit, put a little bit more work into my management, I can enjoy these things and do these things and accomplish these things um, that I didn't think were possible. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, I, I cannot imagine doing that much bike riding ever. That's, that's a huge accomplishment. Has that led to more uh, bike rides or more athletic type stuff for you? Yes. Yeah. So after that first one, that was in 2012, I did a second bike ride with a different organization, um, raising money for uh, young adult cancer survivors. Um, same idea though. It was from Baltimore, Maryland to Portland, Oregon, another bike ride, same idea. I was a little bit more confident with my type one. Um, and I was better. I think I was better at explaining it to my teammates. So I think I felt I wasn't as isolated as the first time I had a great time on my first ride, but I felt like I was definitely holding back from people because I didn't want to burden them with my type one, um, which I now see as an, like a, a failed opportunity to, you know, educate them about something that they probably didn't know about beforehand. Um, and then the second time after the second time I was really inspired to, I had another great experience and really wanted to share that with other people like myself. So other people with type one. Um, so then that inspired me to organize my own bike ride to raise money for a type one or a type one nonprofit. Um, and we ended up cycling. Uh, it basically, we put together a team of 20 type ones from around the world. It was an international team. Um, and we ended up biking from New York City to San Francisco in wow. what was it 70 days so 10 weeks oh my um gosh. yeah and it ended up be, 
we turned it into a documentary. Um, you can watch it on YouTube. It's called Bike Beyond. And uh, that was, it was really, that's probably my most like proud that I've ever been, like being able to put that thing together. Um, but also looking back on it, I realized that there were a lot of like, short, it was, it felt short in a lot of ways. Because um, there is, within the chronic illness community, I think specifically, there is a lot of, um, I guess you could call, you could consider it internalized ableism, whereas we're trying to prove how capable we are to live with our conditions that we kind of kind of go over uh, above and beyond with like bike rides like this. Um, uh. And it kind of I think so the documentary, like I said, the kind of the 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 motto of it or the the meaning behind it, I think, was you can do anything with type one specifically. Um, but that's not always the case because it's not just about the physical aspects of type one and like the medical side of it. There's also like the ripple effects of having type one in a country like the U S specifically, it's really expensive. Not everybody can take the time off during an entire summer and bike across the country, even if the type one or not, right. um, they don't have that privilege. I realized how privileged it was even within my own chronic illness, mm. um, and it made me realize that there's just more to type one than just like the the insulin dosing yeah. and uh, blood glucose monitoring, stuff like that. Wow. Do you feel like this pressure to prove yourself? Like, was does that still kind of come up for you? It's definitely something that I don't say anymore. Definitely. Like you can do anything with type one. It's because it's not true. Essentially. It's very, um, it's not true for everybody at, at the very least. Yeah. Um, especially if you're a minority, uh, or a black indigenous person of color, like it's a lot harder on you. Um, it's a lot more expensive. Uh, there's a lot of medical racism involved. So like there are certain management styles and or management or like medications, I guess you could call it, um, that people like black indigenous and people of color are just not offered because their doctors for whatever reason, don't think they, they should have them. Um, and it's, been proven like you know there's been studies done they're not um suggested to these things um and even if that wasn't the case like it's still really expensive and hard to afford um if you're underinsured uh, or don't have insurance at all so yeah. there are glaring um inconsistencies within chronic illness experiences too right. across like socioeconomic um uh, like levels and stuff like that right VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So if somebody is not does not have the access or the means to get some of these like management tools, what are they usually working with? Is there like a huge spectrum when it comes to the way that you can manage your type one? Uh, so it's not, again, it kind of comes down to monitoring your blood sugar and insulin. So you need insulin and a way to get it into your body. So syringes, um, there's a, something called pens. Um, they're basically like kind of high tech syringes that are, um, they work with like pen caps. They're, they're less conspicuous than the syringe and vial that I, sh I, sh I showed you. Uh, and then there's pumps. So like, that's kind of like the three different ways you can manage your insulin needs. Um, and then there's 
glucose monitoring, which again, you can do that with, you can go to CVS right now and get a glucometer for a few bucks, but even that can get expensive, especially if that's your only way of doing it, uh, your only way of monitoring your, your blood glucose. So because test strips are like, I think it was clocked in or I saw something as like a dollar a strip and they come in like, um, drums of 50 and 100 so they can be really expensive there's like there's like generic brands that you can get but even that like if you're doing it you should be testing around eight to ten times a day and that that adds up mm -hmm. and so again it's not something that you necessarily have to do but it's very helpful if you know where your sugars are um at any given point so that you can dose appropriately okay Gotcha. And um, kind of back to the, the bike ride, because that is a, that's a huge feat. I know that you obviously discovered a lot during that process about other things, but did, did that ex was that experience different? You mentioned that your first experience when you, when you accomplished this, this big, big thing that you didn't feel like other people really knew what that meant to you, doing it with a group of people who have type one, were you able to like look around and everybody kind of understood how huge of a fucking deal this was that you all did this together? It re yeah, it was, it yeah. was very similar, but also very different in that I was, uh, or everybody knew what it felt to like be or have a really high blood sugar and be biking all day or a really low blood sugar and being biking all day. So there was a lot, there was a lot fewer conversations that I had to have personally, just because everybody right. understood what, what was going on. I just, there were points where like we would be walking around, like, you know, after a bike ride and just like enjoying the day. And I would say like, Oh shit, I'm low. And then out of nowhere, five people would hand me a snack. And that's like, not something that you get every day. Like people, right. Typically, there is, I would say, a great deal of isolation with chronic illness because, like, people typically don't live with um, people that have that same experience. So, like, there's not a whole lot of us out there. Um, I live in a city, uh, so there's I, I'm surrounded by more people than your typical person. But, like, a lot of type ones live out in the country, like, you know, middle of nowhere, and they're the only type one in their town kind of thing. So there's a lot of isolation. And during that ride, those 10 weeks, it was very surreal like being not being the only one and just being in a in like a situation where everybody understood everything so like there's a lot of anxiety that just kind of like melts away that you didn't realize was there because you I at that point I was 17 years in and always had to be worried about my type one in one way or another but when you're surrounded by it ironically I guess there I didn't I had to worry about it less mm -hmm. or I felt like I could yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Is there something that you do to like manage any pain that goes along with having type one? I'd imagine like injections and all that is very painful. How does that, I mean, how do you manage that aspect of it? So actually, well, I guess it would sound like it's painful, but syringes nowadays are very thin. Like, I don't know, probably be hard to see this, but the needle, these are kind of weird. I got, I think I got fooled at the pharmacy they gave me the wrong syringes uh but they're very long and very thin so like okay. it's but it, like, like you're saying or like you're suggesting you have to do it a lot and so it can be rough on the skin there's a lot of scarring involved um I, i've noticed there's like you know kind of bruising happens when you stick a needle in and inject really fast like it it bursts you know capillaries and stuff like that which is bruising essentially um but in terms of just like but it's not painful in the sense that like it's like uh, like a constant pain. Um, there's like, you know, our fingertips can get pretty um, calloused because of all the finger pricks. That's what blood glucose monitors use. It's like your blood. We, I, I got into a habit of calling them blood sacrifices to the BG gods. 
um, because you have to literally give blood every time. Right. Um, but yeah, so like there is pain. I don't think it's, you know, it's very minimal. It's not pain like in the constant sense. Gotcha. And how has the global pandemic affected the type one community and just you specifically as well? Yeah. So again, it's, it, I think it kind of started out the way it did for everybody. At the beginning, there was a lot of uncertainty. There wasn't a whole lot of information out there and we would get kind of bits and pieces of it, but it was kind of very unknown. Um, so at the beginning, I thought that type one specifically were very like, you know, apt or aptly prepared for this kind of thing because we deal with, you know, medical issues all the time. And there is a, a great deal of uncertainty with management. You just kind of, you never really know what your blood sugars are going to do. We can try our best to control them, but like, it's really hard to do that. And I thought like, yeah, we're the best people to be in this situation. Like we know what to do. Like we're very used to doing or changing lifestyle habits to accommodate a medical condition like mm -hmm. type one. Um, but then as the summer went on, I started realizing and like acknowledging some of my own privileges. Like I've, for the most part, I've always had insurance while I've had type one and I've always had jobs that have insurance. So like I can afford my medications, but other people, uh, especially people that were living on the borders between in Canada and Mexico, they depended on the fact that the socialized medicine in Canada and Mexico allowed them to afford their insulin. So they would cross the border get all the insulin they needed and, you know, drive back home. And then with the, with COVID, the borders were shut down. So like they were kind of shit out of luck. So they didn't have their regular supply of insulin. So there was a lot more, there was like a spike in mutual aid. So like mutual aid is basically the type one or diabetes uh, community, the insulin dependent diabetes community, I, I guess you could say. Okay. Um, helping each other out. So sometimes people just have more than they need at the time. So like, or people have extra funds that they could donate to people that so that they could afford their insulin at the pharmacies here in the States, or they would send them insulin. So like, there's a lot of that going on a lot more um, than previously. And uh, I don't know if you knew this, but there was like, there was that land hurricane in Iowa last year. And, you know, there was a point where Iowa was similarly, like kind of like how Texas was affected last week. Mm -hmm. They had no power, like areas were flooded. And there were a lot of people in Iowa that needed insulin. And they were like in a crisis emergency situation uh, and they needed insulin. And so the mutual aid helped out there. Okay. Last week in Texas, there were a lot of people that needed uh, insulin and ways to make sure that their insulin didn't go bad because if it freezes, it's done. Like you can't use it anymore, oh, um, wow. especially in last, you know, last week's case for Texans. And so there's a lot of, I think the community, especially, and this is probably happens in a lot of chronically ill communities. We understand what it's like living with a chronic illness in this country. So we are very um, willing to help and very quick to help. Um, and I think COVID saw a lot of that and it kind of, it kind of pinpoint, it didn't like make us realize that, oh no, our healthcare system is broken. It just like made it more apparent, but just how broken it is. Um, yeah. And then in addition to that, just kind of, that's just kind of like a general community kind of thing. And for me personally, it made me like, I was, I, like most people, like uh, I started working from home in March and haven't been back since. So like um, my insulin needs changed, which I was kind of shocked about. Um, I started needing more because I wasn't as active. Uh, exercise or regular activity can help kind of like increase your insulin sensitivity, which means that you don't have to take as much. You get the same effect. Um, 
in terms of like lowering your blood sugars. And I was kind of like um, a little bit, not embarrassed, but like concerned about it because I think there is this sense of pride in the type one community of not needing as much insulin. That's just kind of like an ego thing, I guess. Um, and I caught myself in that. It's not something, again, you, you need as much insulin as you need. There's nothing wrong with taking more or less. Uh, but because of my lack of activity or my reduced activity, I was taking a lot more and I had to like, you know, fight my own demons with that. And then, um, it also made me realize my, uh, my issues with food. Like, um, I had, uh, at that point, it's not something that I've ever really thought about up until towards the fall of last year that, um, I guess my relationship with type one, uh, has really affected my, the way I think about food and how to go about like, like, I don't like cooking for myself. I don't like shopping. Like grocery shopping is like really, uh, anxiety inducing for me. Um, before COVID times, I would go to the 24 hour grocery store, like in the middle of the night. So I didn't have to deal with all the people there. And it was just like, it was just an easier, but then I have like the the option paralysis. Like there's just so many things and each food has a different effect on my blood sugars. And it was just, you know, a lot of thinking into a very, right. what I thought should be a very simple thing. Like I just, just go to the store, get food and leave. It's not that big of a deal, but for me it was. And yeah. so I, there was about like a month or two period where I, I didn't go to the store but I would just get like fast food because I would get really like caught up in the decision of what store, like what restaurants around me to go to. I would like think too much on it and it would, they would be closed by the time, like I made a decision. So like, I would just like, um, give up and go to a fast food place. And because they're, although they're not as, there's not healthy food by any means, they have better um, nutritional information. So like you can dose really easily. What we dose on is based on the number of carbs are in a given, you know, plate of food. And so for fast food and like chain restaurants, it's very easy to figure out the dosages based on that food, even though it's not good for you. It can be a lot easier on your sugars in the, in the way that it affects them or like you can plan them better. That is just a whole nother level of decision fatigue. Would you be able to give us an example, like between two different types of foods and how they affect you when you eat them carbs are what we go by so carbs right. are basically it's just sugar right um and that's what we have to take into account when we consider how much to dose our insulin mm-hmm. delaney your body does that naturally like you eat something and then your body knows how much it is your, your body also makes enzymes that delay digestion so like your body doesn't absorb carbs as quickly as mine does mm-hmm. so like then that way your insulin can kind of like meet the carb the, the raisin sugar of the carbs. So like it evens out. So okay. that's why your blood sugars are as stable as they are. Whereas okay. mine, my body doesn't halt digestion. It can't stop food from going in. Once I start eating, that's when it starts absorbing. And so if there's no insulin there, that's just, you know, shoots my sugar up, my, okay. my blood glucose up. Okay. And so there are certain foods that make that easier. There's certain foods that are just have fewer carbs. So there's less of a spike, um, And then there are combination foods or like those are the difficult foods that are really hard to dose for because they are different food groups that affect insulin absorption differently. So like pizza is a really famous example because pizza is carbs, protein, um, and grease. So fatty foods tend to slow down insulin absorption, but carbs tend to shoot up your sugar 
because they're absorbed a lot more quickly. And then protein is a weird thing where it's a slow acting carb. So like the protein eventually turns into carbs, but much later. So it's like a delayed effect. So you have these three things kind of working at the same time. So for pizza, it's a, you have a weird dip because you take your shot and it, and it you know, lowers your blood sugar, but that's because the fat isn't um, allowing the carbs to be absorbed. So then it shoots back up and then it's like an extended shoot up because of the protein and the dairy. It's a whole big thing. It's yeah. like, I, it's a lot, the longer you have it, the, like the, the more instant these decisions happen, but that's kind of basically, and it sounds like a lot because I'm just kind of laying it out very bluntly. Um, but yeah, that's something that we have to think about with every food or every kind of meal, even snacks too. Um, there are certain times of day and this changes throughout the day too. It's not like a consistent shot. Like the pizza that I had last week doesn't have this, doesn't, didn't come with the same dose that the pizza I had this week. So mm -hmm. to say, so it's not like wow. a one, there's not, no, there's no silver bullet. It's very, um, situational. Wow. Has, has your, have your levels ever gotten to a dangerous point? Yes. Yeah. So that's kind of where I realized my, like my issues with food actually this last fall, um, like my very disordered eating habits. Um, so there was a point where I was like excited to have a, um, a meatball sub. Like I was gung ho about this. I'd been planning it for a couple of days. Like I'm going to have this meatball sub, yeah. um, which again is a very complicated food. There's bread, you know, cheese, like marinara sauce, which has sugar, um, and you know, the protein and stuff like that. So it's like a, a hard food to like narrow down in terms of dosing. Yeah. And so being like, you know, the good type one in quotes that I am, um, I decided to pre-bolus, which is when you dose before you start eating, because there's a, there's a delay effect with insulin. Um, it doesn't absorb right away. It like takes a while to get through to your bloodstream because you have to do it. You have to inject it into fat. Um, so then I did that and it started. So I, and I started walking to the pizza place to get my sandwich and it's the insulin started to drop my sugar sooner than I thought. And so by the time I got to the house, I was in the forties, I want to say, or fifties. So for, you know, context, yeah. uh, like a optimal range, like where you're, where you're running on a hundred kind of thing, like your blood sugar would be between 90 and 120. Oh, wow. And so dropping down to 40, um, a lot of different things happen. So like you're, you start sweating because your body's working a lot harder because it doesn't have as much energy to work with. So it has to work harder to like pump your blood and to breathe and stuff like that. Um, your brain is at a deficit. So like anything lower than 70, your brain, you start to lose like cognitive ability. Like you start forgetting things. Um, it's harder to like retain information. It's harder to make decisions. And so there was a point where I was, you know, dropping very dramatically. And so I started to like, you know, scarf down my sandwich, but because of the, what it is, it's a very complicated mixed food. It doesn't absorb as quickly. And so then I was like very terrified. And that was at a point where I stopped going to the grocery store because I was just so, um, reluctant to like deal with that anxiety. So I just avoided it and just bought food whenever I needed to, uh, which works when your sugars are at a, you know, in range kind of thing. That's our terminology for it. But when you're in a crisis situation and you can't think properly, you can't go to the group. You can't go to the convenience store and grab a Snickers bar or something like that. Um, so I was, so then I started like panicking and thinking, Oh, I'm going to die. Like I'm dead. 
like this isn't this is going to happen um so i was terrified and then but i do have roommates and they had food but then i was terrified that they would find out that i ate their food um and then so i was having this like argument with myself it's like hey stupid just eat eat the granola bars they don't care like you can buy them more it's like no but like what if they find out so it's like a very very ridiculous situation that i did not have to be in um but because of my issues with food and like you know just making decisions based on my type one and how food affects it i was in a really scary situation that i didn't really need to be in wow but obviously you know i'm here uh so i ended up caving and eating my roommates granola bars and uh, spiking up to like 300 oh so like yeah so it's a then it went back up oh wow so it went back up so highs are a bit easier to deal with because it just it's very uncomfortable and very painful but like you can get through it but lows are the ones where there is a lot more danger it's a lot more urgent than than uh than a high and the fact that that you are grappling with this decision that seems, you know, like, of course, of course, eat your roommate's food because it's, it's, you're, you're in a threatening situation, but is that because of the, the cognitive, like that part goes down. So the decision-making yeah. gets a little bit. Tougher. I would, I would say, I think for me specifically, my, um, my highs and lows are very, they, they hit my emotion. Like I'm a very emotional low and very emotionally high person. So like when I'm high, I get angry really quickly. Um, I'm a lot more irritable or I'm quicker to get irritable. Whereas when I'm low, I get really depressed. There's another similar situation where I, you know, dosed sooner, uh, when I dosed earlier than expected. Um, and like, I had to wait for the food. So like, it took longer to get the food than I anticipated. So I was going lower, um, quicker. And I just started getting into like, you know, nothing means if I get really nihilistic, like there's no point to this. Like there's, it's life is meaningless. And I'm just eating there, you know, sitting there eating my Chipotle, um, like stuffing my face with this burrito and like just contemplating existence and like how meaningless it is. And just like being like, oh God. And yeah, it affects your mental capacity, your emotions. Like I get really emotional depressed specifically. And I get into those really weird head spaces. Um, where nothing means anything and you know life's over so like why even bother kind of thing um but it and you know even eating food it takes a while to get to that it takes a while for you to absorb it so like you know you could be eating all the right foods but it just takes a while and it's very uncomfortable to be in those situations and that mindset too so like you kind of overeat and then that's when the kind of the the bounce back up can get into your way so yeah it's a lot to think about and it's really hard to explain very like you know succinctly like you know i'm kind of rambling on but there's like just so many things going on and it's really hard to like pinpoint which one's the worst kind of thing yeah do you think that um or have you found that disordered eating is a common theme in the type one community yeah Uh, the thing the thing i like to say is like i every time i look at a plate of food is like how much is this going to fuck me up kind of thing um because it can really it can really like mess up your entire day if you don't get it exactly right um and yeah, but like disordered eating and eating disorders within the type one community are probably a lot more common than we even realize, just because it's not something that's easy to talk about. And again, food is something that we have to do. It's not, we don't have a choice in it. There are certain situations where if we don't eat, we could literally die, kind of like how I was explaining, even though I was literally eating, you know, eating a sandwich, but because of the kind of food it was and the way the body works, um, it wasn't working, you know, as quickly as I needed it to. Or again, a lot of that was emotional too. Like I was panicking. And so like, because my blood sugar wasn't going up as fast as I wanted it to. Um, but yeah, so like I would say, I, 
can't think of the numbers off the top of my head, but it's a lot more common. Um, and again, it's not it's not directly associated with the type one, so like it doesn't have anything to do with your insulin or your blood sugar, but it, it's you know there's a correlation between it. They're they're, they're linked. Wow. So if if you find yourself in an emergency situation where you for some reason cannot get your levels at at a, at a, a good spot, what are the options? Calling nine one one? Is there like a, a certain emergency thing that you can take, or are yes. there options? Okay. Yeah. So there are options, and you know, I thought about this. I was thinking about the store the other day, and I realized that I actually had this emergency option right next to me, like the entire time while I was like panicking, freaking out and thinking I was literally going to die. And like trying to think about like, when are my parents going to find me? Like, you know, like I spoke to them recently. So like, you know, that kind of stuff. And my roommates were out of town that week. So like, I didn't know I was contemplating people finding me in my room, like, or how long it would take. Um, when I actually had my emergency, it's called an uh, emergency glucagon. So it's basically like very intense sugar dose or like glucagon is what, you know, the medical term for it. And essentially there's a couple different forms. Um, the one that I have is inhalable. So it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like an asthma pump, but it goes up your nose. And so like the sugar shoots up into your brain. So basically it's a lot quicker. Um, and also I think, so that way your brain can start functioning faster because your brain operates on sugar too. Our entire body works on sugar, but if you can get it up to the brain quicker. Um, so had I taken that, it probably, I probably would have snapped out of it a lot quicker, but because of the cognitive deficit that a low blood sugar can bring, um, I was just not thinking clearly. I was, you know, catastrophizing in that very, which is, you know, very understandable. Like if right. any type ones are listening, I'm sure they've they probably have experiences with that sometimes. Um, and I just feel like after, after the whole thing, it's like, you just feel really silly. Like how dumb was I that I couldn't think of that. And again, like that made me realize like my disordered eating, like I needed to get a better relationship with food. Cause like mm -hmm. the, the whole reason why I was so panicked in that, in that scenario was because I didn't have any food in the house because I hadn't been to the grocery store in like three in two months at that point. Um, and again, it's like, it brings up mental struggles and mental health issues that you probably are more used to repressing um, in a more clear mindset kind of thing. Thank you for sharing all that and opening up about that. Um, really appreciate it. I'm sure a lot of people are, um, yeah, obviously learning so much from what you've been sharing. So one thing I think a majority of people that are, are hopefully working on, myself included, is is inclusion and, and recognizing how we have caused people harm and perpetuated harmful systems and, and things. And so I was wondering, can you share uh, what, what ableism is and what that, what that means and anything else that you want to share around that? Yeah. Yeah. Ableism is a big topic of discussion in, you know, chronically ill com uh, communities of all, you know, types. Um, so ableism, just the dictionary definition is discrimination in favor of able-bodied people. So it's, and it's kind of hard to kind of conceptualize or like narrow down because it's just, that's just what society is. It's made by able-bodied people with able-bodied people in mind. Um, so like one thing that I kind of think about a lot for type one specifically is like nutritional information. It's very important that we get third dose or carb counts, right? Um, but I, I read somewhere that in the U.S., 
it's okay if the nutritional information is off by 20%, that that's the, the margin of error. Oh, it's, wow. It's perfectly acceptable for that. And so if you're trying to do your dose and like for whatever, I, I'm not really sure how large that is, like how many foods are off by that much. But if you're off by a lot, 20% is kind of sounds insignificant, but when you're thinking about dosing, it can kind of really throw you off and that can like just ruin your whole day kind of thing. Um, especially with insulin, because insulin, like I said, it lowers your blood sugar, but it can also lower it to zero. Like it can kill you. The therapeutic range for insulin is very, very small and it changes. So like, there's no like one dose that I can use every time. It's very dependent on what I'm eating during the day. What I did that day, my activity level, my stress level, like, you know, your hormones, just the other hormones in your body can affect your insulin absorption. So like before this podcast, I was really nervous and my sugar was shooting up. Um, and so like, I took a whole bunch of insulin to lower it and it hit me all at once. And so I had to eat something to get it back up. So it's like, it's a very, it's something that you have to stay on top of. Um, and it can be very frustrating and maddening um, the longer you do it. But again, again, it's very easy to like kind of dump all this all at once. It's over the course of a lifetime, I'd say. So it's, it's very difficult, but also at the same time, it, you learn to live with it because you have to, like, that's really, I have to make decisions that keep me alive every day. And so it can kind of, there's a, a weird middle road that I think a lot of people with chronic illness have to walk is like, how do you explain something that's both serious, but also something that you live with every day, like mm. very, almost, almost to the point of being nonchalant about it. So it's really difficult to like, to express that without underplaying it, but also without overplaying it kind of thing. Is there, are there, is there certain terminology that we should all be using and, or not using, like stop using when it comes to able-bodied people and people with disabilities that you can share with us? Uh, yeah. So I think a lot of, <clears throat> I think, or at least something that I've noticed is that illness in general is just something that we're not willing to talk about. Um, or it's very uncomfortable to talk about, especially with like able-bodied people. There's the sense that you can't bring something up because you don't want to make the person that's sick feel bad. Mm -hmm. um, I've had people on the show, uh, one, uh, Cammie, she's from Nebraska, like a very small town in the middle of Nebraska. She was literally the only type one in her town for a couple of years until her younger brother was diagnosed like oh, two wow. years later. Oh, wow. um, and she, like, she, her story was that it was really hard for people. People didn't feel like they should ask her about it or talk to her about it. And she's a very like outgoing, bubbly person that wanted to talk about it, but she didn't have anybody to talk about it with. Um, so there is that sense of, it's not something you can talk about. It's not something that people want to talk about. And also it's hard for um, us to open up about it because there is that sense of, it is very vulnerable. You don't know how people are gonna react to you having a disability essentially. You know, type one diabetes is a disability. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. The term disabled is really hard for a lot of people to accept. I never really thought of myself as that uh, up until recently, but it is like, I have a harder time living than other people. Like no matter, even if I had like the best, you know, blood glucose levels that I've ever had in my entire life, that changes constantly. Like it's not, it's something that I have to work at. It's not something that just happens automatically. And so just by definition, I'm at a debt. I'm at a deficit. Like I have um, things that I have to worry about that I have to do that hold me back from um, being a hundred percent all the time. So in terms of talking about, I feel like people, 
it would be really helpful if people just kind of um, were more open to discussing disabilities and chronic illnesses with the people in their lives that might have them. And also to maybe take an internal audit of how you talk about sickness and illness in general. I think there is a very adversarial kind of attitude towards it. Um, people fight sicknesses and flus and you have to work through it, um, you know, walk it off kind of thing. If you admit that you're sick, it means that you're weak. Um, we really pride ourselves on, um, you know, doing a lot of work with very little uh, sleep. Like, you know, sleep is very important, um, especially with people with chronic illnesses. Like that's like, you know, your body's time to recover. And we have a lot more recovering to do than your average person. Um, so like the attitudes around illness and sickness are very, um, antithetical to like having an open discussion and being kind of like, okay, with being chronically ill, um, which I would really love to see change. And I think it is changing. There's a lot more visibility around chronic illnesses, especially I started TikTok, I think last summer, and there's a lot of chronically ill people on there just, you know, talking about their illnesses and like giving, um, little, you know, one minute Ted talks kind of thing. Yeah. And really giving a face to these conditions that people either never heard about or like really had misconceptions about. There's a lot of like type one TikTokers out there, uh, a lot of autistic type uh, TikTokers that I've been watching recently. So there is, I think, the biggest thing that able-bodied people could really help with is just being willing to talk about these things with people mm -hmm. going through them, but also not defining people by their conditions. So like right. looking at the people behind the condition as opposed to just the condition itself, because there is... Type one is a really big part of my life, but it's not the only part of my life. Like I have a lot more going on and I'm a person that, you know, again, wants to live and be happy and find a great job and, you know, get married at some point. So it's something, there's a lot more to us than just our illnesses. And it would be great to be able to uh, be seen for that. Yeah. Right. So basically, you know, not being afraid to ask questions instead of shying away from the conversation completely. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah. Or even doing your own research. Cause like, yeah. and again, research in the sense that like you can definitely Google, like, you know, get the dictionary definition of a condition, but also you can like seek these people out, people that are actually the lived experiences of people with these conditions, like Instagram and TikTok are really great places to find just random people that are going through these things. Right. Um, there is a problem with representation. So like, just like, you know, in greater society within chronically ill societies, there are certain people and certain images that are promoted over others. So like you don't necessarily see a whole lot of black indigenous or people of color. They're not as promoted as say, like, you know, in the type one community, at least the, the, the predominant image of type one is a pretty like skinny white girl kind of thing, young white girl. Mm. And you can go on Instagram and you know, type in type one, like, you know, hashtag type one. And there's a lot, you, you know, it's a laundry list of, you know, pretty white girls, which is fine. Like they definitely have type one and their experience is valid, but it's not the only one. So definitely try to find people that are living this experience, but also try to diversify that experience. Cause like not everybody's experience of this condition is going to be the same. Right. And um, I know we have to wrap up in a little bit, but I have one one more question. Um, how how did you feel about there was a commercial that I was you know was watching the Super Bowl and there was a commercial that came on with is it Nick Jonas who has type one talking about that there's a new app or something for type one and measuring you know your levels and stuff. How did you feel that represented the type one community? Do you have any thoughts about that? 
So th th there was a huge discussion about that, but I actually want to get your sense of it because you're as a person that had pretty, you know, a fair degree of knowledge about diabetes and type one, but I want to get as a person that's kind of, kind of in the dark about these things. Yeah. What did you get from that commercial and what did you learn? If anything, like, what did it say to you? as yeah. a person that doesn't have it. Absolutely. So I literally knew nothing about type one and, until you and I, you know, started talking and I was on your podcast. So I was coming in with literally nothing and <laughs> ask all, all a bunch of questions that I was curious about. So when I saw the commercial, I, I thought of you because you are, you are one of the only people I know who has type ones. So like, oh, I wonder, you know, if this is what Walt uses. And then, um, to be honest, I thought about like, oh, it's, is it, it's, is it a good thing that like Nick Jonas is representing the type one community and there's, oh, there's, there's updates happening because he talked about how like, you know, finger, finger pricks are really still doing the finger prick thing. Let's like update this shit basically. <laughs> so I was like, oh wow, there's like advancements being made. That's so cool. So I looked at it as like, this seems like a, a positive thing that there's a representative there's there's stuff happening that are maybe in, increasing the i don't know uh reducing the pain around this as far as finger pricking and stuff like that that is pretty much what i felt from looking at it to be honest so what was your or what was the discussion in the in the type 1 community about this yeah so it was kind of there was definitely people on both sides of it some people thought it was really great um, that, you know, Nick Jonas, cause he's had type one for a while now. Um, and you know, he has visibility and awareness and like people now know about this condition. Um, I saw it, I was kind of on the other side of it. I saw it as an ad. It was a commercial, you know, trying to sell you something. Um, and you know, you say type one probably cause you know, you know me, but the commercial actually doesn't mention the word type one at all. Oh. Um, it just says diabetes, which is actually oh, good because okay. diabetes is, it right. composes a lot more than just type one or type two. And those are the ones that people talk about the most, just because, you know, more people have those than the other types that we discussed earlier, um, which is actually a good thing. Diabetes just the, in general, so as to not like, you know, single anybody out because right. anybody with diabetes could definitely benefit from this technology. Um, the technology itself is actually not that new. It's been around for a while. Um, and then a lot of it has more to do with just like the company itself and people's thoughts on Nick Jonas. So like Super Bowl commercials are very expensive. Like we, you know, the, 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 the number that was thrown around a lot was $5.6 million for a 30 second ad, uh, Super Bowl space, right. Right. um, or Super Bowl time space. Right. Um, and that's just $5.6 million just for the ad space. And then there's on top of what Nick Jonas was getting. And then the, you know, the production of the commercial you're talking about, I don't know, around $10 million for that whole campaign. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, it, it, and the campaign itself doesn't point to the real issues in the type one community or in the insulin dependent diabetes community. Um, because not all people that use insulin are type one. Um, because that's really the issue is that not everybody can afford their insulin. Not everybody can afford the technology that they're advertising right. on this Super Bowl ad that costs so much money. And it's not that, and the messaging behind it is that finger pricks are, you know, dumb, um, gross. I kept on saying, it sounded like he was going to say gross. He didn't say that. He said, he made it seem like it was stupid. Like, mm. and it, the, the commercial made it seem like people weren't using Dexcom because they just didn't know about it. People know that this is, has existed for a long time. The reason why they can't use it isn't because they don't know about it. It's because they can't afford it. Oh. Um, and really 
the Dexcom, there's problems with the technology itself. It doesn't work all the time. It doesn't, you do have to finger prick because you have to calibrate it. So it doesn't, the, the messaging is misleading. So like, it's not like you never have to finger prick again. Um, Wow. So really not an accurate representation at all. It's not. Yeah. The technology is very temperamental. So like it can work very well for a long time, but it also cannot. So like it's misleading to think that you never have to finger prick again. Um, It also makes it seem that like people that are finger pricking are dumb or stupid Mm -hmm. or like gross or like you're, you're behind the times. It makes people feel bad. And it's not because a lot of people would much rather have a Dexcom. They just can't afford it. Um, Finger pricks are really the only option that they do have. And so like, yeah, so it, it gives a different impression of the reality of the situation for a lot of people with type one, people with type one, um, specifically pumps and the CGM technology, which is what Dexcom is only about 20% of people can afford it or use it. The rest of us, the rest of us are using multiple daily injections, like the shots every day or finger pricks. And that's just because they can't afford anything else. They would much rather the CGM technology, even though it's very temperamental and it doesn't always work all the time, it can save your life. Like if you're going um, low in the middle of the night, not everybody wakes up from that. Um, and it can really save, it saved a lot of people's lives. It's helped me out in a bunch of times. Um, it's very, it can be very life-changing if you can afford it, but not a lot of people can. And I think the biggest concern around, or at least the negative side, there were a lot of people that loved it. They thought it was like awareness building and like they, they kept on saying, uh, type one is like got a, uh, add in the Super Bowl, but it wasn't for type one, it was diabetes. Um, so like, I don't like referring to that commercial specifically as awareness building because it wasn't it was a commercial they were trying to sell you something um which you know i I kind of followed the the stock markets after that or like the stock news and apparently dexcom like saw a huge increase in stock and their stock went up after that ad um and kind of like the thought behind it is they're trying to make type twos more aware of it because there's more type twos than our type ones and type twos can definitely benefit from this technology but there's also kind of like issues with their customer service like they're very they're not very responsive or like the technology doesn't work all the time it's really hard for people with type one to get it um so like there's a lot of there's a a lot of uh concern around it and a lot of uh criticism around it so yeah but that's just me um relaying these things you can definitely you can go on twitter and look up you know look up nick jonas through dexcom and you'll see you'll see probably a mix of it a lot going i think that was i think this is a really good example of how you know someone like me who does not live with type one or diabetes can just take something at face value very kind of surface level like oh cool neat and someone like you who has this lived experience is a whole and a different perspective and so much more knowledgeable about it. And I think that's just important for all of us to remember that to dig a little deeper and, and talk to the people who are actually living this stuff. And instead of kind of just staying, staying, keeping yourself an outsider from these conversations. So thank you so much. This, I, I learned so many things from you. Thank you for opening up and sharing all of this stuff. Um, before we kind of wrap up and I'm going to have you do a segment with me and all that good stuff. Um, do you have anything else that you want to share? You know, anything else that you think is important for people to know any final, final thoughts or nuggets of wisdom by Walt? (laughs) Uh, yeah, really. Yeah. Just kind of going back to what I was saying, like, like you said very well, um, opening yourself up to the, to the conversation again, 
are so like Western medicine has a very adversarial attitude towards illness and um, sickness in general. So kind of realizing that we all get sick at some point, uh, dis disabled America or disabled people um, are is the biggest minority out there, pop like portion of the world, because we all become disabled at some point when we grow like you know, geriatric, like people in their 70s and 80s are technically disabled because, you know, they can't see as well, they can't hear as well, they can't walk, move as well. Um, so disability is one of the biggest minorities out there, or the disabled community is the biggest minority out there, and it's one that we all eventually end up in. Mm. I just happened to beat you all to the punch um, wow. because I was diagnosed at 12 kind of thing. Um, so like getting a better familiarity with that and just like, you know, reaching out to your friends, like uh, understanding if you have any chronically ill or disabled friends, um, understanding their, uh, the way they go about life and how much different it is from your able-bodied experience um, and being willing to talk, talk to them about it, not just about the, the condition that they have or the, you know, chronic illness that they live with, but how it affects them, how it ripples into their the other aspects of their life um you can do research like google it don't always don't always expect your friends to give you a ted talk and teach you everything you need to know <laughs> right. like we have yes. lives too we don't we don't want right. to be talking about this 24 7 it's, right. it's a very middle it's very you know uh case by case basis but you yeah. can do a lot of google research you can do a lot of social media research especially now a lot of people are you know stuck inside so they have a lot of time to talk about their disabilities and their chronic illnesses and their experiences with that um so yeah it's about opening up the conversation. I think both sides can do that. Chronic illness, it's very hard to talk about, um, but it's also very hard to learn about because you don't want to be ignorant. It's something that, but if you don't know, you don't know. So the only stupid question is the one that doesn't get asked kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, okay. So I think we're going to do a good shit segment now. If that's yes. cool with you. So anything fun, exciting that you're, whatever, anything good in your life that you want to share and talk about? Uh, yeah, uh, I guess a little shameless plug at the end here. Uh, on the podcast, I'm doing a couple, I'm, you know, in the process of getting interviews done for this new season. I'm going into the fifth season of Ask Me About My Type 1. Um, having uh, did a couple interviews this past weekend that I'm really excited to share. Uh, have a doctor on. She has type 1, but also is a doctor, and she gave her experience of COVID throughout this whole year. We did a, like a type one at the time of COVID last year, getting her sense of the issues of COVID surrounding COVID, like with type one, but also, and now it's a year later and I'm having her back on to like, see what's been going on with type one and COVID and her experience as a doctor um, with type one uh, at her work. Um, and just, yeah. And just kind of remind people that if you are interested in learning more about type one specifically, you can always find my podcast, ask me about my type one. It's on pretty much every pl uh, podcast platform you can think of. Uh, there's a lot of episodes down there, so there's bound to be something uh, interesting for everybody. Perfect. Awesome. Love it. I guess my, my good shit uh, share is also podcast related. So we turn this into a good shit, AKA also uh, podcast plugs. Let's do it. I, I just wrapped up season one of Efficionado, which is my solo podcast for entrepreneurs and business owners. So if you want to check that out, if you are a business owner, entrepreneur, artist, performer, and you are interested in a minimalist approach to entrepreneurship, feel free to go catch up on that. There's 10 episodes in season one. And I think that does it. Oh, Walt, where can people find you? You mentioned your podcast, but is there anything else that you would like to direct people to, whether it's your personal stuff, organizations, whatever it may be? 
Uh, yeah, you can definitely uh, find my podcast on Instagram. It's uh, Ask Me About My Type 1, uh, type the number one. It's all written out. Uh, there you can see, you know, past episodes, uh, you know, I'll post every now and again, uh, news that I find in the type one community, um, in terms of people that are just interested in helping and learning more, I definitely suggest, uh, you know, searching hashtags in Instagram and TikTok. TikTok is probably the best one just because it's very quick and very, there's a lot of really creative type ones out there. Um, and if you're really interested in helping people with type one, not necessarily like in, in your immediate circles, mutual aid, like GoFund, sadly, there's a lot of GoFundMe pages out there just for people needing help with affording their insulin. So if you go to GoFundMe, literally just type in insulin and you'll find you know, probably thousands of pages with people looking for help affording their insulin. And that's probably the best way anybody can help a type one, especially at this you know point in the, uh, at this time, you know, insulin is very expensive. It shouldn't be, we're fighting to get that fixed. But in the meantime, people could definitely help with donating whatever you can. Awesome. Thank you so much, Walt. Thank you for coming on the show uh, to further educate me and our listeners who didn't know anything about this or not much about it. So really appreciate it. And that does it. You're on self-helpless. Thank you for, thank you for being a listener for, (laughs) for three years. That's really nice. And I hope you have a, a wonderful rest of the day and I'm sure I'll chat to you soon. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for, you know, the platform and letting me talk about this thing. I talk about it a lot, but it's really nice to get it, speak about it with people that aren't familiar with it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Bye. Goodbye. What an episode. Thank you again to Walt for coming on the show and sharing all of that with us. And before we wrap up, we do have an iTunes review of the episode. This was submitted by Morris Deb, and it says, came for the laughs, stayed for the raw content, obsessed with these rad humans. The imposter syndrome episode was a game changer for me mentally. I felt so validated, seen, and related to their stories. Their episodes feel like a conversation with your good friends. Oh, thank you so much, Morris Deb. I'm really glad that episode um, helped you. We've been getting a lot of feedback about imposter syndrome, so that might be one that we dig into even further in the future just because of the feedback we have been getting from so many of you. So thank you very much for leaving that. We do like reading an iTunes review every episode. So if you want to submit one, head over to the uh, to the iTunes on your app or computer or wherever you have access to that. And feel free to share anything. Uh, it could be topic recommendations, um, some of the, your favorite segments from the show, favorite guests, anything that you want to share, feel free to drop it in there. And then before I sign off, I just want to give a big shout out to somebody that we have had on the show as a guest, Amanda Hill who came on to share her experience with uh, the 12-step program that she is a part of. And such a good episode. She she gave us specific examples for every step of, of the 12-step in her process and really deeply personal stuff. And I know a lot of you really appreciated that episode. She just started her own podcast and it is called Life Not Wasted that she does with her friend Molly. And they talk about navigating sobriety and wellness and all kinds of stuff. So it just launched, but they're going to be covering uh, social as- aspects of sobriety and the steps and and everything in between. So feel free to check that out if that is something that you might find helpful. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. We love you so much and we will talk to you soon.
Hey everyone. So the day after recording this episode, I found out that comedian Eric Myers had passed away. I know we have so many comedy fans that listen to this show, and I just wanted to share Eric with you if you hadn't heard of him or seen his stand-up before. Eric Myers, and I don't say this lightly at all, he's one of my favorite comedians in the entire world. One of my favorites I've ever seen and he was truly one of a kind, so brilliant, unique, hilarious. His writing and his performance were equally incredible. I was fortunate enough to have many experiences performing with him, and no matter what show I happened to be on with him, I would always stay to watch his set. No matter the time of night, he was going up. For reference, you know, when you're performing a lot, you might be popping in right before your set, you go up on stage, you might watch the comedian after you, and then you leave to your next show or you go home because you're tired. I never left early when Eric was going to be performing. I couldn't wait to see him on stage. He just makes you belly laugh, like this guttural or visceral reaction you didn't even know you could experience with a comedian. Like people in the audience would almost react like very like in an animalistic way where they'd be laughing so hard that they'd be falling out of their seat, not being able to catch their breath. I could watch and I could hear his jokes over and over and over and laugh just as hard every time as if I hadn't heard them before. And I was just so in awe of his talent and was shocked to know that he struggled with the that he struggled with stage fright and perfectionism. And sometimes he'd get off stage after just absolutely crushing a room, just an uproar of laughter and applause. And he'd come up to me and start overanalyzing all the things he could have done or said differently or better. And he was second guessing himself. And I just couldn't believe that someone with that level of talent and stage presence, you know, someone obviously born to do this was experiencing the same stage fright and perfectionism that I was feeling as a performer. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Um, he was just so immensely talented. He was so good that nobody ever wanted to follow him on stage. I'm talking huge names in comedy were afraid to follow Eric on a show because we all knew that if Eric was on stage, that's when the show peaked. It wasn't going to get any better than that. Anyway, um, it's a huge loss to the comedy community and to the planet, and I encourage you to go watch every possible video you can find of his work. There's a bunch on YouTube that you can find. His name is spelled E-R-I-K, last name M-Y-E-R-S, and I guarantee the next time someone asks you who your favorite comedian is, Eric Myers will be on that list. Thank you so much for listening to the Self Helpless Podcast. You can find our Patreon community, merch, and our individual work at selfhelplesspodcast.com. We'd be thrilled if you shared this episode with a friend or feel free to post it on Instagram and tag at selfhelplesspodcast so we can repost you and say thank you. Can we have